Just before we uh, <coughs> turn to our sermon, just want to spend a few moments in prayer. Uh, reminder for our, our own folks that are uh, part of our church here that we're having our annual meeting electronically about 15 minutes after our service ends. So it's scheduled for noon, but we might be a few minutes late after that. Depends on how long. If the preacher gets wound up, you know you're in trouble. But anyway, I'll try not to be too long. Uh, we just want to encourage you to uh, sign in on Zoom and, and just click the link in the email we sent you. And that's, that's part of service and worship. It's doing things well and in good order and having a vision that, that fits with the vision that our Lord had to see people come to him. So that's the only announcement to make. Let's just pray. Lord God, thank you. Uh, they, we resonate so strongly with the words of these songs that we have uh, sung today. That you call us. You call us to the cross. You call us to yourself. And Lord, because you have done that and we have received you, we now know you. And we, we just praise you and thank you. The more we know you, the more we realize how much we have in you, our Lord and Savior. And so, Father, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. And Lord, we know that the work that was done on the cross was to pay for our sin. And you also told us through the Apostle John, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we have done that to you, for you. But we also bring, at this point, we bring anything else that, we, that you bring to our mind that is not in keeping with the way you want us to be. We pray that you would, we, we want to thank you that you have also died for that sin as well and that we are forgiven of that. But Lord, help us to do better. Help us to walk better. We give you such thanks for the blessings you bring into our lives, Lord. There's so many things. We could, the list is so long. We could, probably, we could probably have 50 things that we're thankful for this morning. But today, more than anything, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for your love that motivated you to set things right with the Father so that we also could be with you, the Father and the Spirit. And so, Lord, we just lay these things at your feet as we sing, even through the night, even through the dark times. We know the battle belongs to you. We know that you go before us, you go behind us, you are beside us, you walk with us. Lord, more correctly, we need to walk with you and acknowledge that you are with us. So that's our prayer this morning, Lord. Thank you that you do hear. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I doubt that I, I don't think I'm alone in this, but I'm really looking forward to summer <laughs> because uh, Lord willing, by then, we'll be able to go farther afield than we can right now and maybe even have some vacation time and, and drive farther than the end of our street or our, in, our, in our own town. At one of our favorite places to go, we have a couple of favorites. One of them for Sunai is to go to Vancouver Island, especially to the city of Victoria. 
If you take the ferry from here, you go to the Tawasan Ferry Terminal in South Delta, and you land at, uh, at the terminal in, on Vancouver Island at Swartz Bay, and you go down from there to, um, to Victoria on a highway. It's technically, it's still Highway 17, which you're on on this side, but most people over there call it the Pat Bay Highway. About 22 kilometers. It's an interesting stretch of road. It's, it's, there's the city of uh, Sydney, the town of Sydney, Victoria International Airport. It's pretty small for an international airport, but it's still there. And, uh, and a lot of farmland. Halfway along is Elk Lake. And on some of our trips, we've seen a really interesting sight. We've seen athletes training in racing shells. Long, thin boats for one or two or four or even eight people who all, the multiples, row in sync. Elk Lake actually was rowing Canada's training facility until mid-2019. They've moved up island to Lake Cowichan now. Now, if the shell is for, built for eight people, eight persons, there's usually one extra person in the back called a coxswain. And he or she sit in the stern, the back of the boat, face the rowers. The coxswain's job is not just to yell at them, but to encourage them and steer the shell at the same time and coordinate, make sure that the power from all those oars is coordinated and in rhythm. Racing shells are only propelled successfully when all the rowers work together. That's the coxswain's job. And a good coxswain has to be positive, has to be a great motivator, has to be really encouraging. Uh, the rowers have to have that unified effort, though. There has to be unity. And if one or more of them actually get out of sync, it's disastrous. The boat starts to slow down, and then you're going to lose the race. Unity is vital for a racing crew. In fact, it's important to the function of most organizations and groups. But it's especially important in the church. Jesus knew that unity was going to be an issue for us. <coughs> he, uh, he prayed in his prayer in John 16 and 17. He prayed this prayer, John 17. He said, talking to the Father, Lord, my prayer is not for them alone, us. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me. Wow, think about that. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the, <coughs> excuse me, this is the fifth sermon in Unshakable Joy. Uh, and I'm really, got to tell you, I'm really appreciative for, uh, for Gordon Sorensen, who was able to speak the last two Sundays in the series and keep it, keep it in the series because um, I just, just, just didn't have it the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I'm grateful. And thank you. Thank you, Gordon. But this time we are going to be in chapter 2. And it's where Paul today is going to tell 
the church at Philippi, the Philippian church, how they can please him, how they can make his joy complete. He says you can do it by having and displaying unity. Let's turn together to Philippians chapter 2 and we'll read the passage for today. Therefore, right at, right at verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. That's... that's doesn't that just make you bubble up with joy? <laughs> yeah, it does. The key verse in this section of chapter 2 is the second verse, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. The command that, that, which talks about unity in the church is, is not just found here in, in Ephesians. It's repeated in some of the other uh, letters that Paul wrote. Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, verse 3, it's not on the screen, but it says this. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort. And in Romans 15, which we covered a couple of months ago, Romans 15, 5 and 6, he says, and this was one of his blessings as he was finishing his letter, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is unity possible in a church? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. It's sometimes you're going, I don't know. But it is. Do, do we have what it takes to be united, to be unified, to be on the same track? Yes, we do. And Paul gives us four reasons in that first sentence of chapter 2 of why we can do that. They all start with a um, little preposition, if, but the word actually 
that Paul uses in the original dispels any doubt. This is not like if this happens to be the case. This is if or since this is true. And that's the sense of the passage he's writing. Since I know these are true of you, people. I know these. So he says, since. Since it's true. Four things to consider here. He says, if we have encouragement from being united with Christ. And he reminds them that if Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, we already are united in Christ. We are one with Christ. We have salvation. We have been rescued. We have had our sins forgiven. How can that not be encouraging to us? It isn't when we think about it, but we kind of file it back here in one of the archives and sometimes we don't remember that. Second, he says, if you have any comfort from the love of Jesus. And I don't think this could be overemphasized. Comfort from the love of Jesus. We are loved. And having the love of Jesus, we can love each other. Well, what does that look like? Well, in the context of, of Paul's, this letter, it means that out of love for each other, we should settle any differences we might have. I mean, let's think about it. How does it honor Christ if we enjoy the privilege of his love personally, but we don't extend that to the others? It doesn't. Matter of fact, the Apostle John, in his first of the three small letters near the end of the New Testament, wrote chapter 4, he said, We love because he first loved us. And we saw how he loved us. So third, he says, if you have any fellowship, koinonia, in the Holy Spirit, common sharing. This is the word that we probably know the best. Uh, he's saying the gift of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, has been given to each of us and the Spirit indwells us. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, for we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. We are partners with the Holy Spirit and each other. We're connected. And the fourth thing, he says, if you have, but he means if and since you do, I know you have tenderness and compassion. I know it's in you, people. I know it is. But he says, since you have these things. And the word that he translates tenderness here is it's a, it's a word that means mercy or tender affection. Uh, it's, it's a particular Greek word. Splankna. Not a, not a pretty word, but it means tenderness, tender affection or mercy. Compassion is actually an outward expression of that deep feeling of tenderness that we have. That strong desire. Compassion is, is because of a strong desire to act. Compassion is always expressed with action. Now, if Paul had just said to them at the beginning of the letter, like, obviously, he's, he's sending them. One of the reasons he sent this letter, as we know, is to thank them for the gift that they, they sent through Epaphroditus. But if all he'd wanted to do was that, it would have been a really short letter, like, hi, guys, thanks for the list. See ya. I'll be back soon. 
but he knows there's problems in this, this, this group of people. But if he had said to them right at the top, smarten up, come on, treat each other better, they might have just shrugged it off. But instead, what does he do? He reminds them of these incredible things that they and we have as followers of Jesus. How can the Philippians not be moved by Paul's appeal? How can you not? So it's as though he's saying to them, since you have all these things, how can you not be unified? If you're united with Christ, if you're comforted by the love of Jesus, if you enjoy the fellowship together of the Holy Spirit and you're tender and compassionate, what's preventing you from living it out? Ah, that's not in the scriptures, but that is my understanding of exactly what he's saying here. When we keep all that God has done for us in mind, then, then we find ourselves staying united. And the Philippians need some examples, though. They need some for instances, specific examples. And so he gave them four if, and this is true, four senses, he now gives them four things that they have to change if they're going to have the kind of fellowship that honors God. So if these things are true, then, if you have all these things, then first, make my joy complete by showing it. Don't just say, yeah, that's the way we feel. But if, you don't, if people don't see it, how would they even know? By showing it. In showing it in four ways. First, by being like-minded. We're united. We're one with Christ. And Scripture, 1 Corinthians 2, 16 says, we have, not only that, we have the mind of Christ to access. We have the mind of Christ. So he's saying, if you have the mind of Christ, use it. Second, he says, by having, show it by having the same love for each other the love of Jesus toward each other, the same love that set the captive free, the same love that opened eyes to see. That love. Third, he says, by being one in your spirit, small s, one in your spirit. In other words, he says harmonious, united in spirit. Uh, and that is a work, by the way, that is actually brought about by the Holy Spirit in us. And the last, he says, kind of referring back to the beginning of the passage, being like-minded, being of one mind, one mind, having a common outlook, choosing to agree, yeah, choosing to agree and going in the same direction for the glory of God and for the fulfillment of his commission. True spiritual unity comes, can't be imposed on people. It has to come from within. It's a matter of the heart. We can try to do things to, to, uh, to legislate unity, impose it from the outside. That would only possibly uh, result in uniformity, but not a unity of spirit. The goal here isn't that we all look the same, sound the same, think the same, and walk the same, and lockstep behavior. It's what he's saying is, we need to be living out these transformed lives that are, that, are, that are happening within us as we are being changed inwardly through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
It, it isn't produced, and you know this, it is not produced by outside pressure. It, it's not produced by threats. It comes about when our hearts are right with Jesus and with each other. And so he tells them, rather, he says, act in humility, not selfishly. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain. That values others, value others above yourselves. Now, considering this, this exhortation, uh, you, you pretty much can read between the lines and conclude that there was some disharmony in this church and a little taste of it comes later in chapter 4 when he pleads with two people who were fighting. He pleads for them to get along in the Lord. But there's some disharmony and it's damaging them. It's holding them back. It's like they aren't oaring at, oh, oaring. <laughs> they aren't rowing at the same time. And so it, it, it's not moving. They might even be limiting the joy that they ought to experience because of these, these things they're holding on to. And so what he says is, folks, you need to stop living selfishly. Stop acting selfishly. Because he says the Christian life is not about me. It's about us. If chapter 1 taught us that Jesus is supposed to be first place, no other gods before. Then chapter 2 says, others should be our next focus. Not self, others. <sighs> Rather, he says, in humility, value others above yourselves. Uh, biblical humility, by the way, is not thinking that you're nothing but a worm. <laughs> it's not thinking poorly about yourself not having a low opinion about yourself. It really is simply not thinking about you. Not thinking about you all the time. Singing one note. Me, 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 me. It's not. Seeking to advance yourself. Selfish ambition produces factions. When our motives are wrong and we act like we're better than the others, the unity of the church is put at risk. Advancing yourself produces what Paul calls, he calls vain conceit, that literally translates empty glory. In other words, there's no glory there. It's empty. You think it's making you look good? It's not. Humility, he says, is being concerned for others and not being consumed with ourselves. That's not in Scripture. That's here. I, I put that in. There's no greater example for Paul to offer than Jesus because Jesus lived a, a life completely obedient to the Father. Uh, the rest of our reading today, actually, from, the, from where that is introduced in verse 5, from verse 6 on, is actually believed to be a hymn in the early church. Uh, putting scripture and music together to teach people has been around for a long time. And this was a hymn. And, and actually, if you take a look at what this, these five verses say, or say six verses, you hear the entire gospel. You can see it's all in print there. That's why they believe it was actually a hymn that was taught to help people learn and remember the, what, what was done for us. 
So it's the example of Jesus' humility and of his selflessness. And so he says, we need to have the same mindset, the same attitude as Jesus. Well, what was it? Who? In his very nature was God. At his core, Jesus was divine. But Jesus didn't consider that something to be grasped or to be held on to for fear of losing it. He already possessed equality with God. He didn't have to grasp it. He was God in the flesh. Do you remember John, John 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word, Jesus. He exists eternally. Always has. Always will. But to do what the Father wanted him to do, Jesus took on the form of a servant being made in human likeness. He did not, there's a, 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 a one train of theology that says he emptied all of the divinity out of himself when he was born. I don't believe that's correct. He didn't cease from being God. He chose to make himself nothing and take on that human form. He chose it. And he chose doing that to only use his divine power when the Father and the Holy Spirit directed it. So he was completely human. But at the same time, he was completely divine. And it makes your brain hurt to try to understand that. Because it, it sounds like a contradiction. It's a paradox. But it's two facts that are both true. It's true. Being in very nature God, he took the very nature, same phrase, of a human servant. servant. Well, who was he serving? You might think us, but no, he was actually serving the Father. Jesus told us he did not come to do his own will, but the will of the Father. To set things right. Paul's letter, uh, his letter to the Galatians, Church of Galatia, starts that way. He says, chapter 1, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. And what was that will? And Jesus would be obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was so committed to the Father's plan that he obeyed it even as far as death in the most cruel and hideous way imaginable. Death on a cross. Philippi was a Roman city. The Christians living there would have been very familiar with it. It would have been repulsive to them. would have repelled them. And the Romans only executed people that only executed slaves and foreigners that way. They considered it too horrible to execute a Roman citizen that way. The Jewish people that were reading Paul's letter would have been scandalized by what he just said because they know that in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it says that anyone hung on a tree, on a cross, was cursed. In other words, were outside the covenant of God. 
that would have scandalized them. And that be, became, becomes a stumbling block to a lot of, lot of Jewish people. They just, they, they look back and say, but, 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 and they have a trouble getting, getting through that and coming to terms with what Jesus did on, on our behalf and on their behalf. Uh, only the Son of God could choose death. We can't. It's going to happen, whether we want it to or not. We just don't know the timing. We are all appointed to die. And Scripture tells us after that comes judgment. Unless, unless God's justice could be satisfied by, for our sin, by a substitute. Jesus became our substitute. John called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He also says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be declared righteous in the sight of God with his righteousness, nothing of ours. And he, so he says we are declared to be in right relationship with God by trusting Jesus and, and believing he was raised, that he died for my sin and he was raised from the dead to show God's approval of that. He chose obedience to the Father. Therefore, as we know, as we cheat, we go to the end of the book and we know the whole story, don't we? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Resurrection. He lifted him, he says, to the right hand of the Father. That is the position of all authority. God gave him the name Lord, which is the name given to to God himself in Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, 23, God speaking says this, By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. That is why Paul writes at the, at, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow before him. Every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. A time is coming when every knee will bow before him. In other words, recognizing his authority. And everybody means all intelligent beings in heaven, angels or saints who are there already, on earth, or under the earth. Angels, humans, demons. He, he isn't saying that all people will be saved. And, and some people make that error and truly believe that, but they're, they're mistaken. He isn't saying that, but he's saying that all people will acknowledge at that point because they will see him face to face. They will acknowledge Jesus' lordship. They'll either have joy in faith because they've trusted him in this life, or they will have resentment and despair because by the time they are standing there, it's too late. 
of course, we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You can do it today. You can confess Jesus as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and receive his gift of salvation. To bow before him, to bend the knee, or to bow before him now, means salvation. To bow before him at the final judgment means condemnation. And it's a word we don't like to hear, but it is reality. The whole purpose of Jesus humbling himself even to death on a cross and being raised to the highest place at the throne of God was to bring glory to God. Bring glory to God. If we seek to exalt ourselves, that's to our shame. And the cost will be the unity of our, of our church. Greatness and honor in the kingdom of God come through faithful service. There's no other way. If our attitude is to bring glory to God and not to ourselves, then we will thrive. We will see unity thrive as a church. And when we have that mind of Christ, and we, that is obvious by the way we conduct ourselves, then we will have that unity because we'll be doing those things. We'll be serving each other the way he served. We'll be following the example he gave us. We'll be willing, if even necessary, to die for each other. Uh, we won't be seeking after our own glory, building ourselves up in everybody's eyes. We'll be waiting for God to lift us up and be obedient to the Father's will. Well, what do we take away with this one? <laughs> it can be summarized with one question. Do we have the same mindset as Christ Jesus? If you have laid down your life to him, if you have acknowledged him as the Lord, as God himself, you acknowledged his sacrifice for your sin, you have received salvation. Having that same attitude or mindset is what builds the unity in a church. Because when we do that, when we have the mind of Christ and it shows by what we do, yeah, we, we, we end up having unity. What about you? You know, like if you're listening this morning or watching, are you at odds with another Christian brother or sister? You need to fix that. You need to admit it. Confess it. Repent of it. Are, are you harboring unforgiveness or resentment in your heart? And this is probably something that, if we're honest, affects all of us. Because if we get hurt, or we get disappointed, we hold on to it. And it holds on to us. Or, on the other hand, have you chosen to not be easily offended? Do you serve faithfully? Do you model your commitment to Jesus and to the mission that he gave us in a way that promotes the unity? Are we promoting the unity of the church? We will if we have that mind. All of us have a role in maintaining unity 
and promoting unity in the church. Starting point is us and our attitudes. I want to go to prayer now and with the Holy Spirit leading us, do a very brief review. Want us to confess or agree with God anything that the Spirit brings to our mind that tells us we are wrong. Want to confess and agree with God on that and turn from it and receive the forgiveness of Jesus for those things. So after about a half a minute, a half a minute, I'll pray and then we will observe the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. The Lord is here. He hears us. He receives us. Amen. And so, to remind us, the Lord himself gave us two symbols, two things to do. He said to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Teach them everything I've obeyed. But he also said, I'll give you something to remember this by. And so the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, had supper with his closest disciples, the apostles, in an upper room. And it was a Seder supper. It was the supper that that was the Passover meal. It was the night before Passover. The night of Passover. And he took the elements of the dinner, the bread, the flat bread that they would have had, with no leaven, no yeast in it, to remind them of how they had had to be rescued out of Egypt and didn't have time to even bake the bread and let it rise, let it rise and bake. And he lifted it to heaven and he gave thanks for it and he broke it and then he passed it out and he said, this bread represents my body broken for you, which will be broken for you. Take it and eat it and do this When you do this, remember me. And so we have together actual bread or a small wafer, if you have them at home. Just this represents the Lord's body broken for us. And we do it together. We do it because we are one in Christ. And we thank him for it. So I say, Lord, thank you for your gift of love. Thank you for for going to the cross and dying for my sin in my place. Thank you that you rose again and I serve a risen Lord because the Father accepted you on behalf of our sin, accepted your sacrifice. And so he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it, and when you do, remember me. After supper, after supper, he took one of the uh, one of the the cups of wine, the one they had after supper, 
that represented the blood sacrifice of animals that was put on the doorposts and lintels of their homes in Egypt so that the angel of death would pass over that house. They were protected. They were, they were kept their life by the blood of the lamb. And he said, let this cup represent the blood of my new covenant with you, the blood I'm going to shed for you. And when you take this and drink it, remember me. Remember the sacrifice. So we do the same thing. We say, Lord, thank you for this other symbol of the cup. We take this and acknowledge you, and we do this together. Amen. Let's take it. He told them, for when you eat this bread, you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back, until he returns. We serve a living Savior. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing one last song before we finish this morning. And we're, it's another, it is a new song. Um, We've, we've all kind of had the same reaction to this song as we started learning it. We kind of fell in love with it right away. And so we hope that you'll understand why when we start to sing. <laughs>